You're listening to The Director's Box, a football business podcast. Here are your hosts, Raphael Geller and Jesse Forstott. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse and I'll be joined by Raphael. Today on The Director's Box, we're going to be talking with former FC Cincinnati head coach and current manager of the Colorado Springs Switchbacks, Alan Koch. Today we'll be covering a few different topics, including Alan's philosophy on how to build a team at the college level, the USL, and in MLS. Alan tells us about giving Alfonso Davies, the current Bayern Munich and Canada national team star, his professional debut as a teenager. And Alan tells us about how he goes about establishing a culture at a young franchise. Alan Koch is a South African football coach who has spent decades building a successful career in the United States. He began his coaching career in university before making the jump to the professional ranks with Vancouver Whitecaps. Coaching the Whitecaps too, Alan developed the likes of Alfonso Davies and Tim Parker. Alan took over as the head coach of FC Cincinnati in 2017, who then played in the USL. Alan was in charge of two incredibly successful seasons, and at the conclusion of the 2018 campaign, was voted USL Coach of the Year. Alan then went on to lead the franchise into their MLS transition. Finally, in September 2019, Alan was named the head coach of USL Championship side Colorado Springs Switchbacks. Alan had a lot of great insight, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Alan, how you doing? Welcome to the show. No, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Jesse, good to have you back as well. How are things in New Jersey this week? Maybe give our, our audience a bit of an update of, of what's going on there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, things are kind of in a holding pattern, but I think I'd, I'd like to not jinx anything, but it looks like things are hopefully starting to take a turn for the better. Things are, people are starting to talk about going to restaurants with, uh, with outdoor seating, maybe 50% capacity, things like that. So we'll take anything we can get at this point. Absolutely. Well, we're very excited for today's show because we're going to get to uh, explore a lot of different things and talk about a coach who's, who's made an impact in a lot of different countries and in a lot of different levels. And uh, the first thing we want to talk about, uh, Alan, is trying to understand your story is how did you make the transition to coaching and to collegiate coaching uh, in the U.S. and, you know, what got you through the door being a guy from South Africa and you have your Canadian background as well. How did you uh, get in your first job in, in coaching? Yeah, I think like a lot of players that have played professionally, I, I played pro for a few years and then I had to stop playing uh, when I was 25 years old. I was playing in the League of Ireland uh, for Limerick uh, and had to stop playing. And to be quite frank, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with my life. Um, and Vancouver had become my base. So I went back to Vancouver. I this is uh, showing I'm a little bit older. This is the days where you look for jobs in the newspapers and circle, <laughs> circled everything in the newspaper and uh, literally applied for every single job under the rainbow. I got a job uh, with a lighting company and I was selling light fixtures. Uh, I'd fly over to China uh, and go to the factories there. And I did that for about six months. And um, you can romance it as much as you like. Obviously travel is something I love to do and going and seeing different places and different cultures. Um, and I enjoyed that part of it, but I am not passionate about selling light fixtures. <laughs> so is I anyone passionate about selling light fixtures? Yeah, you got to be people? careful. You got to be careful what you say. You never know. Um, so 
I, 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 tr I tried to do it. It just wasn't for me. Um, and then I had actually played at Simon Fraser University. And the assistant coach, when I played, became the head coach. And he offered me a job to be his assistant coach for $5,000 for the year. Um, and I didn't even think about it for a second. I would have taken it if he gave me five bucks for the year. Um, <laughs> and got into coaching uh, as a profession, and that was in 2001. So here we are 20 years later, and that's how the journey really began. And would you say that, I think that what's interesting is, can you maybe tell the audience out there who doesn't know that much about uh, collegiate soccer, because obviously collegiate soccer is not a, a big thing in the world outside of the United States and, of course, a bit Canada. Can you kind of explain what that means? How, what's, how does the program run? How is recruiting run? Uh, do you have a budget to go recruit players? Because I think a lot of people don't know the idea or the concept behind collegiate soccer in North America. Yeah, to be brutally honest, I had absolutely no idea. I, uh, I'd heard of it uh, before I came over as a player, and that was in the mid-90s. Um, but it's evolved so much since then. Uh, and even when I was a collegiate coach, this is some time now, it's a very, very big business. Um, the game is becoming more and more professional, and I firmly believe the collegiate game has a, has a role to play within that structure. It's an environment where... Yes, there's a big academic component. Obviously, players have to have certain grades to get into certain universities, but these, these programs are run in a very professional manner. They have full-time professional coaches, fantastic facilities at these universities. Uh, there is scholarship money available for, for different players. And it's, an, it's a niche market, uh, but it's definitely a, a part of the player development pathway where players can go and train uh, every single day, play competitive games, travel, uh, and get exposed to so many different elements that are a major, major part of the professional game. Um, so there's been a lot of debate in recent times, obviously, as to the pros and cons and the merits of the game. Uh, but as somebody who played in the collegiate structure here in North America and has coached, uh, I definitely still see a lot of merit uh, in the system. And do you see, I think, Alan, one of the things that people listening or just people in the United States in general might not think about is, yeah, universities might have their place that you can debate when it comes to developing players, but it's also been a, a breeding ground for coaches. And we've seen, obviously, you know, you're a good example. And then even with the new USL League One that started last year and with, an ex so both a team last year, Lansing Ignite, um, Nate Miller, who coached, who coached the Lansing team, uh, came from a, I believe a Division three school in Michigan, and now this year Jay Mims came from from the University of Nebraska Omaha to coach the expansion team uh, Union Omaha. So, do, do you think that colleges also serve as as a good breeding ground for for coaches as well to move into the to the professional ranks? And again, that's not really something you see in Europe or really in any other country. But is that something that you that you see? One hundred percent. And it's, it's so interesting because I think people around the world obviously don't understand it because it's so uniquely North American. But you can list names that people know around the world and they came through the collegiate system. You look at Bob Bradley, Jesse Marsh, uh, you, the, list is, the list is endless. Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena, exa exactly. Uh, and you mentioned some, some guys that have come through in, in recent times. Professional coaching is professional coaching. 
And to be quite frank, I, I say this all the time, it doesn't matter what level and what environment you're coaching in. If you're coaching professionally, you're having to do the same thing. Yeah, we have different variables that we have to deal with. And recruiting a player as a student athlete is very different uh, just as recruiting just a professional player where you don't have to worry about academics, but you're still recruiting a player. You still have to be somebody who has the ability to identify talent uh, and see an individual that will fit uh, into the bigger piece of the puzzle. Um, so no, I'm a, not just because I did it, uh, but I'm a firm believer in the collegiate model uh, as a very good model to develop coaches because you, you learn so much uh, and you, you learn not by just coaching, but you learn by having to wear so many different hats. I think the exposure to, to wear multiple hats can really set you up for success because wherever you go, and I can use examples from my journey, wherever I've had to go, it's been different and I've had to wear different hats uh, and coaching the collegiate game definitely gave me that flexibility uh, in terms of having to deal with all the different elements in every different coaching stop. And what's it been like going, or what was it like going from university to the professional ranks in terms of, yeah, you're still, you're still trying to recruit players because they still have different options when it comes to professional clubs, different suitors. But what was it like making that transition from, okay, I'm handing out scholarships and I'm trying to sell sell this player on on our university on the academic side as well to now trying to bring in a player at a certain salary level and selling and selling them on the idea that your club could give them whatever it is they're looking for whether you can develop them and help them move up or whether you guys are the destination whatever it might have been how was that a difficult transition or can you can you tell us a little bit about what that transition was like and maybe you can also touch on something that Raphael and I like to to talk a lot about which is the role of the coach um, when it comes to involving yourself in the business side of it, you know, would you, uh, do you see the, the coach or the manager's role as being one that doesn't have so much to do with the salaries or is that, is that something that's unavoidable in your mind and something that you did have to adjust to? And yeah, there's, there's so many facets to that question, but it's, uh, I guess from my, my own personal step and making the jump from the collegiate game to the professional game, I was very, very calculated. And I always speak about having to take risk uh, or more specifically calculated gambles. Um, because when you leave the relative safe haven of collegiate coaching to go to the professional game, you're now exposing yourself to a whole different level of volatility. Um, and mine was relatively simplistic because I left Simon Fraser University as the head coach, which is in Vancouver, to go to the Vancouver Whitecaps in MLS. Um, so we didn't have to sell our house. My wife didn't have to change jobs. Kids didn't have to change schools. Um, the only thing that really changed was miss, me making that adjustment from going from the collegiate game to the professional game. But we knew when we made that change, we we're exposing ourselves to uh, a whole different level of the business. Uh, and it's a cutthroat business. The professional game uh, is very, very difficult. It's results-based. The collegiate game is results-based too. Um, but you seem to get given a, a lot more time there to, to make adjustments and, and hopefully have success. Uh, in the professional game, if you don't have success, uh, you can be gone very, very quickly. Um, so that was the, the biggest adjustment, um, is just going from being in a relatively safe environment where a lot of collegiate coaches have been in their positions for over 20 years. There's very few... Uh, professional coaches or managers outside of people like Austin Wenger that have been at their clubs for, for a long, long time. Um, so 
that was the biggest biggest adjustment even though it was relatively easy from a geographic perspective at first we knew when we made that that jump that we were opening ourselves to a whole different pathway we knew we'd have to move uh, i left the white caps to go to cincinnati and then cincinnati to to come here to to colorado and long may this journey continue we're we're open to the journey and uh, you personally have to be open to it, but your family has to be open to it too, of course. Um, the other part that you ask about is just more than just being a coach. I, I'm not just a coach. Like I'm, I'm somebody who's part of a brand. I'm part of a club. I'm part of my identity. Uh, the biggest area of influence that I feel that I really had in Cincinnati and I'm starting to have that here in Colorado is how do you grow a club? Like it's, it's something that you just don't grow by yourself. The owner doesn't just grow the club. The president doesn't just grow the club and nor does the head coach. You have to work together and help and really get engaged in the community, really work with the fans. Um, when I got to Cincinnati, it was a club that was starting out and had a romantic first year, but it was just a first year. Uh, and they had a few fans that would come to the games, but I had to go help grow that club and grow the brand and grow grow the fan base uh, and take it from being a small club uh, in the American soccer model to one of the biggest clubs now in, in the American soccer model. And now I've come to a different project here in Colorado and I have to do that too. I, I don't just focus on how do I coach the team? Uh, I have to be engaged with the fans. I have to be tied into the community. I, I, I take a lot of pride uh, and you may hear some, some Wenger references because I am an Arsenal fan. I'm not afraid to say that. Um, but Arsene Wenger said when he went to Arsenal and he went to Highbury, he actually got to know all of the club employees. Uh, and I can say the exact same thing about when I went to FC Cincinnati. I can say the same when I came here to Colorado Switchbacks. Uh, I've taken it upon myself to get to know every employee in the club because it's important to know who you're working with and how can we push each other's buttons, but how can we get the best out of each other? What Wenger went through in Arsenal was very similar to what I went through in Cincinnati. He said when they moved to the Emirates, all of a sudden there were so many additional employees. He didn't have the opportunity and didn't get to know everybody that he worked with. Uh, in Cincinnati, it was the same. We went to Major League Soccer. All of a sudden, it was new people being walked around the club offices every single day. People coming in, people going out. So it became a bit of a revolving door, uh, and it becomes very, very difficult to get to know everybody you work with. Uh, in those precarious times. Um, but no, I'm a firm believer, the coach or manager is, if you think in this day and age, you can just focus on what you're doing on the field, uh, I think you're losing sight of what you need to do to help grow your club uh, or sustain the success uh, of your club. Or if you're going to an environment where you need to change it, you need to change it, but you cannot just change it by yourself. Yeah, look, I think it's, it's interesting what you're saying because it's very unique to to the model in the United States or Canada that these clubs have been created in the last few years or maybe in the last 10 years or 15 years. Coming from South Africa and you know, having clubs that are really world famous clubs and clubs that are, are recognized throughout the world, what does it kind of mean to you to, to be able to go into a club and have, or let me rephrase the question, but is it, is it a, Thing that you've accepted in America now you kind of have to do everything that you just spoke about when you come to a new club because it's it doesn't have history it doesn't have tradition and you want to build that so that in 50 years people will talk about you know in England they'll talk about in 1800s when 
X, Y, and Z happen. Is, is that kind of your goal? Do you want to be the person who started something that lasts for a very, very long time? Because I think America is so unique that in almost every part of the world, you don't have things like expansion clubs. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. You know, in Germany, maybe an owner will buy a team and the lower leagues and spend a lot of money and build it up. But that team will have somewhat of a history and a name. You might change the name, but in the United States, you have to kind of build something out of nothing. And is that something that you've accepted as long as you're going to be in North America? That's part of the job. That's part of being a manager is, is having to do all the things you just mentioned. You know, what's funny is you, you mentioned North America and North America is still relatively new because they don't have the tradition in the U.S. or Canada, like uh, clubs like, look at all the documentaries that have been out now in this pandemic, and I've had the opportunity to watch some of them, watching Sunderland or Barcelona or the Leeds United documentaries, which are thoroughly enjoyable just to watch, firstly as a fan, but then also watch as somebody who's in the industry. And, and those clubs are, are huge clubs that have major traditions that most of the clubs in the U.S. And, and Canada don't have because the game hasn't been around here for that long. But as a builder... And I am very, very much a builder. Um, I've had to go into clubs and build. We, we did that in Cincinnati. I'm, I'm doing that here now with the switchbacks. But you also have to do that in, in Europe. You have to do that in South Africa. You have to do that everywhere. It doesn't matter if the club is brand new or if it's been around for a long time. Uh, because when clubs make coaching or managerial changes, there are things that have to change. Uh, there's a reason that they make those adjustments. Uh, and I feel like every project you go into, you have to build. And, and some some clubs mean you're building, they only have a few bricks down. Uh, and other clubs, there may be many, many bricks down. But those bricks might have been laid incorrectly uh, or might be falling apart. Um, so a, a builder, I don't think is just somebody who builds something that's new. You, you may have to go in and remodel something. You may have to go in and adjust things. Uh, and... I'd be the first to admit, I am definitely a builder. Everywhere I've gone uh, and everywhere where I will continue to go on this journey, you'll, you'll go somewhere and you, sometimes you have to make a lot of changes. Sometimes you have to make minor tweaks. Uh, I want yeah, to ask you, Al, do, are you, it's funny you say that. I mean, you look at your CV and, and a lot of the places that you've gone, you've built new programs. What if someone in the future would offer you an opportunity to go somewhere that has that 100 year tradition or that whatever, 50 year tradition and you then have to, what you just kind of said, build, build a new part of it. Is, is that something that would also excite you is to go to an uh, organization, a franchise that already has that history, but you kind of build your identity in the history they already have? I, I'm definitely open to it. And I, I think I've said this a lot. I, I'm open to this journey. Uh, I think most of my recent uh, experiences, obviously being here in North America, but I'm open to going anywhere in the world. Uh, I've had offers to go to, back to South Africa and opportunities to go uh, when I got released by Cincinnati to go other parts of the world. And I think the biggest thing when you are a, a builder is to reflect. And I think you have to appreciate the history, the traditions uh, of clubs, because that's the beauty of it. That's the makeup and that's the identity of, of every club. So yeah, I've been at relatively new clubs for the most part in my career. Um, but I'm sure at some stage in the future, I'll go to a club that's been around for maybe even longer than I've been on the planet uh, and be able to, to go to a place like that and really appreciate what's in place. Um, right. Because this, 
that's the romance of the romance of this game in my opinion it, it's the beauty it's the history it's it's what's been done in the past and you look at so many good things that have been done in this game but there's also some bad things that have been done in this game uh, and whichever project you get presented with i think you have to appreciate what was there before and you look at the club i'm at right now it's only this is the sixth year of the club but even in those five years there's history there might be a, a, not a, a huge window of history, but there's definitely history in those five years. And you have to appreciate what worked and what right. didn't work and, and reinforce the good things, of course, but the things that weren't working, don't be afraid to make changes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously there's a new stadium you guys are working on. We'll get to that a little bit towards the end uh, of the episode. But let's first talk about uh, the Whitecaps 2 opportunity. Again, we're going to be speaking in very general terms for people that don't understand the North American model. Can you explain kind of what these kind of reserve teams are compared to uh, a Dortmund two, for example, that would play in the fourth tier or the third or the fifth tier in Germany? What are the differences between these kind of reserve teams and other reserve teams, maybe even from South Africa? What makes them unique to Northern uh, American football? And also what makes them similar to the leagues that I just mentioned? Yeah, it's interesting because of the success I had with Whitecaps too. You mentioned Bundesliga teams. I actually spoke to a couple Bundesliga teams about going and coaching their reserve teams, which for the most part play in the third or the fourth division in, in Germany. And I think people in Europe are now starting to appreciate uh, how the MLS two teams are being run. Uh, and now with them having been around for a few years, people are starting to see success. And obviously, with us in Vancouver, developing a player like Alfonso Davies, all of a sudden the whole world is, is looking at the model to see where did he come from and, and how did you do it? Um, but I think there's a lot of consistencies uh, across the board. If you, you look at the reserve league in South Africa, you mentioned the German teams and their reserve teams, and you look at MLS two teams, everybody's trying to do the same thing. Everybody's trying to create a player development pathway where you can push players either from your own academy through your reserve team into the first team, or if a player is not ready that you source and he's not ready to go into the first team, can you use that second team to, to essentially dump him in there and see how he develops? Uh, and I think you've seen a lot from a lot of MLS two teams that have found players that maybe weren't working in different places and brought them in and tried them in environment. Uh, and some have, developed by, by having the second opportunity to, to kick on and get into MLS, uh, and some have not. Uh, but it's really just there to help push players through the development model, uh, but also give players an opportunity. And most, most of the MLS clubs have used it to promote players from their academy uh, and see how they do playing senior level football. Um, I can use examples from Vancouver, and Alfonso Davies is probably the best one to even come out of any club in North America. And yeah, I think I was about to interject, Alan, just to move. move the, we do like to hear about the models and the, the system of comparing the reserve, league, the, uh, reserve leagues, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't get a little, dig a little deeper on Alfonso Davies. Can you talk, yeah, maybe walk us back to 2016. First, correct me if I'm wrong, but you gave him, did you give him his debut at Whitecaps 2? Yeah, I gave him his professional debut as a as a fifteen year old. Which and would you have in, at that time if someone told you in four years that he'd be he'd be by, on Bayern Munich? Is that something that you? What would you have said? I, you know what? It's I'm ecstatic. I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so proud of the guy. But I'm always one who don't put too much pressure on players. So I try not even think about things like that when you play a young player. 
um, because you want to give them an opportunity and you want them to just embrace it and develop naturally. And I think the second you start talking about expectations or where you think you could go, it puts unnecessary pressure on a player. So uh, we didn't have many conversations like that, but when you have a player like that, that has that much talent at such a young age, you know, he's destined for something. Uh, we just didn't know exactly what he was destined for. Um, but Alfonso was a pleasure. You, we, we sourced him when he was 14 uh, and he was playing professional football by the time he was 15. So that speaks about his development and how quickly he embraced the, the opportunity. And, and to be quite frank, the, the natural talent that he has, um, because when he came in, you could tell how good he was right away. And he went from the U16s, U18s to the reserve team to the MLS in less than a year. Uh, and that's an incredibly accelerated developmental model. Uh, it's very rare for any player around the world to, to make those jumps that quickly. Uh, but he's just not your average player. He's, he's so unique and so special. And uh, he was a joy to, to work with. I'm, I'm still in contact with him now. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to watch him play. I think the whole world is excited to watch him play. He's a, he's a very, very special player just because of the speed, which is so evident. Um, but obviously his technique is continually getting better and better all the time. Uh, his awareness levels is improving. Uh, I, but I think the thing that's probably most noticeable to people that follow him on and off the pitch is just his infectious personality. The kid's just a fun-loving guy. Uh, he's, a, he's a pleasure to be around, and uh, he's very, very exciting to, to watch him play. Yeah, he's been, he's, been a, he's been great to watch, and now that the Bundesliga is returning, he's been featured already, so he's definitely going to be getting all the tension that he deserves. But, you know, you, you're talked about his physical attributes, but surely the, the staff, yourself included, deserves a lot of credit from the Whitecaps organization for bringing up a 15-year-old. We don't have to mention all the countless examples of, of teenagers that have, that, have had, that have seen their careers go to waste. So is there anything that you think that, that you like that you guys did that you would have done differently with, maybe, maybe with him, although I, I doubt there's too much you would have done differently given how well he's turned out, but is there anything that you can talk about when it comes to developing a 15, 16 year old, you know, you've coached with the white caps too, or obviously you're around a lot of young players, which is, which is inherent to the model. And even now with the switchbacks, you, you do have a mix of, of players when it comes to where they're at in their careers and their ages, but you are still dealing with, with younger players. What, what do you think is most important? I guess is my question when it comes to, to developing these players and making sure that, uh, that, that you take the right steps to moving them on, because I'm sure there, there are a few key decisions or a few way, a few important details that, that could really have a massive effect down the line on, on some of these guys' careers. Honestly, I think it's quite simple. It's an integrated and collaborative model. Uh, and in theory, that sounds, sounds easy. Uh, it should be. Uh, and then obviously you need to find the right player to, to work within that system. But by meaning integrated, it means having the different youth teams for the player to work their way up the model, having a reserve team so the player can go in and play in a less pressured environment than potentially playing in Major League Soccer right away. Uh, and then the collaboration is absolutely vital. It's making sure that the first team manager, the reserve team manager, all of the youth coaches, the academy director are all on the same page. Uh, and that is, to be quite frank, that's very, very difficult to achieve. Um, because in every club you go to, everybody has an opinion. 
uh, and everybody has strong opinions. You, you have to have a strong opinion to survive in professional football. Um, but if you can get an integrated model, uh, which takes an investment, uh, and then if you can have a collaborative model where people are willing to work together and, and bend and help manage a player's development, uh, that gives you a chance. There's no guarantees, but it gives you a chance to develop somebody like Alfonso. And we, we managed him very, very closely collectively. He went through the youth teams uh, and myself as the, the reserve or the second team manager and Carl Robinson, who was our MLS head coach at the time, we worked very, very closely. And then we worked with the academy coaches to figure out almost on a daily basis, where did he need to be at that particular moment? Just for his own physical development, but also for his emotional development. Uh, we had a young player who, he's 15 years old, and you put him in a MLS locker room and all of a sudden he's sitting next to a 30-year-old pro who's played all over the world. He has nothing in common with that player. So you have to make sure you put him next to the right people that can help guide him, but then also be fully cognizant that he's a kid. If he wants to go hang out with his teenage friends and go do certain things like that, then you have to support it um, because you'll crush him otherwise. So I thought we did a very, very good job of managing his his professional footballing development, but also his personal development. And even little things like allowing him to go back and train with the U16s. Like you're, you're playing games in MLS and you know what? Go back and train with your friends. Um, and Alfonso, to be fair to him, actually asked for that. Uh, and we embraced it because it was something that made him happy. It, it kept him in a good mental place. Uh, and that's what allowed him to be, be successful. But there, there are unique personalities in this game because you'll see some kids that they make that progression and they become so big headed that they think they're above hanging out with their friends or going down and playing with the youth team again. But when you, you get a special talent like Alfonso and a kid who's, who's willing and wants to go do those things, uh, you, you know you've got an absolute gem. Um, so, no, I think we all, we all take a lot of pride in his development and we're all very, very proud of where he is today. Yeah, and where, where he's going to continue to go. I mean, I know he's at the top, but he still has a lot of career left in him. Let's uh, move on now to Cincinnati, which I know there's a lot of good times there. And I think what's interesting is this was, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the first time you really were, were managing a team of, of senior players, not just youth players uh, on the professional level. I want to ask you, how do you make that transition from being, you know, a manager of, of the Vancouver Whitecaps 2 team where your goal is to develop the young talents, try and get them into the MLS to having to, to honestly have the complete opposite going to a market where you have to win. There are a lot of fans. Uh, there's a lot of pressure and you have to build a team of not 18 to 22 year olds. You have to build a team of, you know, 22 to 30 year olds, obviously some youth as well. But how do you make that transition mentally? Cause it's obviously very different, you know, going from a reserve team with, attendance is, is very different. How do you say, okay, that was my, you know, that was what I was doing for the time there. And now I'm going to a new project. How do you start recruiting? How do you know in your head what kind of players you want as a defender, as a striker? Cause it's surely not the same type of players that you would be recruiting as 16 to 18 year olds or 20 year olds on white caps. So how do you make that adjustment or transition? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, and the first thing while you were, you're asking that question. The first thing that came to mind was, I think it was our preseason in 2018 and we lost our last preseason game. And it was a preseason game. Results in preseason games mean absolutely nothing. And we lost the game. 
and there was mass fallout in Cincinnati because we lost a preseason game. So when you're in an environment and people are going nuts because you lost a preseason game, you know very, very quickly that you are in a passionate place where a lot of people care about the work that you do. So um, that's enjoyable. I love that type of stuff um, because uh, it means you're, you're in a community or you're working for a club or you're playing for a city uh, where the fan base are fully engaged and, and it means a lot to, to everybody. Um, so that probably was the biggest, biggest adjustment where you go from a club uh, like the Whitecaps who are in Vancouver and Vancouver is a beautiful city and it has sports teams and, and people care about their teams. Um, but not at the, at the level uh, that Cincinnati cares about its sports teams. Um, so there's pressure, obviously, uh, but you have, to, you have to focus, like everything in life, on what you can control. Um, and I cannot worry about people's thoughts uh, outside the lines, good or bad. I have to focus on the product that I can control. Uh, and there in Cincinnati, it was a club where, uh, when I was there initially, uh, I was actually able to focus and, and control the recruitment I knew what the budget was and I worked within that budget and identified the players that fit the system of play that we wanted to play. Uh, we identified those targets. Uh, we worked with agents from across the world to, to source the right players and the right characters to come in and, and be part of that group. And uh, I got the job as the head coach in the preseason of 2017. Um, and that was a very turbulent time because the club fired John Hawks in the middle of preseason. Uh, and all of a sudden I inherited a group and, then, uh, then I had to put another hat on uh, and start to work and formulate exactly how we were going to take that club forward. But the biggest, biggest change for me personally at Cincinnati was the off-season between the 2017 and 2018 uh, season. I was allowed and, and given the, the privilege to, to build the team, uh, and I'm incredibly proud uh, of the team that we built and sourced that off-season to, to go in and break all the records and win the league in 2018. You though go specifically though into, uh, you know, into how you figure out in your mind how you're going to recruit when it's the first time. You know, you've been now a coach now since you started off the show by you saying you got your first job in 2001. Now this is the first time that you're managing uh, a senior level and having to do a lot of recruitment. How do you make that transition? I'm sorry if I'm pushing. I'm just trying to yeah. to really understand how do you go from the the youth to knowing, okay, for example, you, got, you brought a player like Dekel Kanan um, from Israel, uh, you know, everyone in Israel knows he's an absolute fantastic guy off the pitch. Of course, he's a great player, but that's what he's known for in Israel. How does someone come to learn that? Is this just something that, you know, you've always been, had your nose in, in world football and you, know, you knew what's going on? Because to me, the, the fact that you made that transition is someone helping you? Is someone saying to you, hey, you should look at this player, are these players that you've heard of how for coaches that are listening that will make that transition at some point in their career how do you build a 23 roster team when you haven't done it yet yeah um you may not like my answer no it's your yeah, your world. yeah it's a completely honest and transparent answer i've been doing this for decades uh and people maybe globally or maybe people in Cincinnati only thought I started doing it in, what was that, 2017. But I started doing that in 2001. Um, because when you build a team, uh, how you build a team and in the different environments, it's different. But there are so many things that are consistent across the board. It's 
what do you have? So you assess the players that you currently have. What's your budget like? Uh, and obviously that, that plays a major part of how do you build a team? Then what do you need? How do you source it? And do you have the network to go out and actually go get the players that you need to, to fit that model? And you do that as a college coach. Um, so I was doing that for, for many, many years. I think what gave me confidence in it in the professional game is the 2015 season in Vancouver with Whitecaps 2. I got the job in January of 2015. Uh, it was a brand new franchise and the club literally had signed these academy players and said, here you go. Uh, and that team was not prepared to play in professional football. So between 2015 and 2016, I, I did everything I'd done as a college coach. I assessed my group of players very, very diligently. Uh, and you go through each player and it's like, who do you want to keep? Who fits how you want to play? Who has the mentality? Who is the character that you need to build the team around? And then what do you need to make this team better? And I identified that off season that that particular group, we needed a spine. I needed a spine of experience uh, that would allow my younger players to flourish. Uh, and we did that. And then in 2016, we took that young team with a little bit of experience along the spine to the USL conference final in 2016. So I took everything I'd done in the collegiate game uh, into the Whitecaps. And then when I got to Cincinnati, I did pretty much the same thing. Now though, with a much bigger budget. Uh, and now with more pressure, like we spoke about the fan group, uh, but you're still doing the exact same thing. I, I continually assess, and I still do it to this day. I, I, I don't know if this is a positive or a negative comparison, but I feel like I'm a rain man. If you, look at our, if you look at our place where we live here in Colorado now during this pandemic, and I had to go source all these different whiteboards, I have, I feel sorry for my wife because there's five huge whiteboards uh, in different rooms around our place here in Colorado. And what I write on those boards changes literally every single day. And it's reflecting on the players that we have. How are they fitting in with what we're trying to build? The system of play, the mentality, the character of our group. Then what do we need to make this group better? Uh, and then what is the budget that's at our disposal? And then trying to source those players, seeing, seeing who's out there that fits the model uh, and is willing to come wherever you are. Um, and different players have at different places have different strengths like you to recruit somebody to come to Vancouver which is one of the most beautiful places in the world is very very different than recruiting somebody to go to Cincinnati uh, Cincinnati doesn't have the mountains and the ocean Cincinnati is a yeah. it's a city of character with with nice people and it has Look, different... let's let's be honest I don't think a lot of Europeans who you'd have to recruit know where Cincinnati is I mean that's perfectly fine to say um, where Vancouver is, is, you know, a world famous city and known for its beauty and all the things you mentioned. Uh, that's a very, you know, it's fascinating your answer. I, I, you said I don't, you don't think I'd like it, but but I do because to me it sounds like you're saying you kind of, from you from the way you see things is from the moment you started to coach to where you are now, the criteria is kind of the same. Just as you mentioned, the budget changes and things change, but the the core values stay the same. 100% like in, in, yeah. in, in 2000 and I'm trying to remember the year now. I'm an old man. Uh, I guess that's relative. Hey, this is when you're supposed to say, guys, you're not that old. You're um, not that old. You're not that old. Yeah, yeah. Is, you still have another 20 plus years in coaching. I, I, I appreciate it. That's what I think. No, my, my first head coaching job in the collegiate game was in 2006 uh, at Baker university in Kansas. And what I had to do there at a small private school in the NAI 
is exactly the same as what I have to do today. Uh, you're, you're building a team uh, with different variables uh, and every place you go to has pros and cons. Um, going to Cincinnati, to be quite frank, the biggest pro uh, there are the fans. It's the supporters. Right. Uh, and the club does a very good job of showing the world how special those fans are because they truly are special. But then you come to a place like here in the switchbacks and now I have a different project to market and to sell. Where we are in Colorado Springs, this is beautiful. Like it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. We live on the side of the Rocky Mountains uh, and the club is building that what in my opinion, I think is going to be one of the most beautiful stadiums uh, in North America, literally a stadium right on the side of the mountain. Um, so those are major, major, major pros. And this is a word, I don't know if it's unique that I say it, but this is a platform club. And every, every club you go to along this journey has a different selling point. Uh, and what I mean by a platform club, this is a club uh, that players can come and use it as a platform to hopefully push on to bigger and greater things. Um, so yeah, you, you have to be a salesperson uh, at times. Uh, and you have to figure out what the selling points are in the different places. Uh, but a big part of it too is not just about your philosophy. It also has to be about the people that are around you. It's like, do you, do you actually have the ability to do the work that you need to do? Uh, and I feel fortunate when I first got to Cincinnati, I was given that leverage. And did you find when you went to Cincinnati, you mentioned obviously you have your pockets are going to be deeper there compared to the reserve team in Vancouver. Same with, with Colorado Springs to a degree where you, where you have a bit more money to spend on guys who, who have been in the professional ranks for years as opposed to, to younger players. Was there, there must have been a temptation, and it sounds like maybe you, you tried to avoid it, but there must have been a temptation to say, wow, I, I can spend where I could have spent X amount on a center back. Now I could spend four times the amount. Did that, are you saying that, that didn't, you didn't change too much when it came to recruitment, when it came to sourcing players? You didn't say, well, man, now I can – now, although you did sign players like Deco Kanan, so maybe maybe your your answer will be a bit different than I'm expecting. But just from how I'm reading, how you were explaining, you know, you stick to your philosophy. Even when you get to Cincinnati or when you get to Colorado Springs, did it did it change even even a little bit when it came to the recruitment? Um, in terms of your yeah your your whiteboards must have looked a little bit different because now you're not looking for for the younger players like you know for the next Alfonso Davies. You're looking for someone who can help you win right now. So as the goals changed, did you find that your that you had to make adjustments in in your recruitment, or were you very steadfast and said, you know, maybe I can I can spend a, the salaries are a little bit higher, but for me, nothing else much changes. Yeah, it definitely changed because with Whitecaps too, for the most part, your biggest source of players that you're signing are just walk down the corridor, go speak to the academy director, walk out to the pitch in the afternoons, and go watch the academy team train. Um, so uh, it's very different to go from that to all of a sudden we're in Cincinnati and uh, we didn't have mass amounts of money from a global perspective, but we definitely in USL terms had, had significant dollars. So now all of a sudden you can use your global network uh, where before it was more just internal recruitment. Now you could go out and you could really travel everywhere. And you mentioned Deco Canon. It's, I'll never forget uh, the trip where I went and met Deco for the first time and scouted him in, in Haifa. And um, it sounds glamorous. It sounds romantic. But I, I flew, I think it was to six countries, I think in the space of eight or nine days. And we're talking going from Cincinnati to Europe to multiple different stops to the Middle East. Uh, I went out to Canada. 
uh, and all flying economy class. Uh, and literally my back was broken by the end of it, but it was completely worth it because on that trip, I went and met with multiple different players uh, that we ended up signing and fit the model, fit the budget uh, that we wanted to, to use to build our championship winning team in 2018. Um, so it, it is different. Uh, obviously your budget dictates a lot in, in terms of what you can do and what you're able to source. Um, and, and that's the enjoyable part of it is because every environment you go to, it's different. Like recruiting for Cincinnati and the USO was very different for recruitment for Cincinnati and MLS in the USO. When I was there, we, we had one of the top budgets. Well, when that first year going into MLS, they, they had, and we had at our disposal, one of the lowest budgets in the league. Yeah. Um, so there's only so much you can do with what you're given uh, to work with. Yeah, I want to ask you uh, about that first year. I mean, I think we spoke about this at the beginning of the show that there's that pressure to win right away. And that pressure is really everywhere in world football. That is something I guess you could say is similar between the United States. Do you feel like it was a bit unfair that they didn't give you uh, more time to, you know, you're, at this point, you're a specialist, specialist excuse me, at building teams. and the team that you had in MLS, it had some guys from USL, of course, but primarily it had a lot of guys that you brought over from other clubs in MLS, from abroad. Um, did you feel like you, you deserved more time or needed more time to kind of uh, mold what you were looking to have from your first MLS squad? I don't think deserve time uh, is appropriate because to be honest, I, I believe in this business, we're all temporary. There, there's no, even an owner, there's no owner, president, manager, player who is permanent with a club because we're in a position uh, that all these positions are transient and they're all performance-based. Um, so I don't think I deserved it. Um, I don't think anybody deserves it. But I think with the budget that we had uh, and what we're trying to do as a new club, I, it was very, very difficult to have sustained success. And I can just speak about the time that I was there. Um, the first six games, I think we were tied for first or second in the Eastern Conference after six games. And then we got into the meat of our initial schedule where we were playing all these games away. Um, and we lost to, we lost five games in a row and that's ultimately what got me the sack. But those were games that we knew were going to be very, very difficult beforehand. Uh, and different people deal with pressure in different ways. Um, yeah. I, I knew going to that first year was going to be challenging. I was the only person before the season started just imploring people to be patient. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and we're, we're, almost, we're almost victims of our own success. We, 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 we had so much success in the USL and we created uh, a mentality in the club and the city that we win every time we play. Um, and then when we didn't, certain people felt the pressure and felt the need to make a change. Um, and that's, that's part of life. That's part of the journey. And, um, yeah, it, it truly, I, I absolutely hate the saying, but it is what it is. <laughs> and you live, you learn and you move on. I want to ask you something that, that Jesse and I, and you know, a lot of agents talk about in, in the business that we find very interesting that I'd really love to get your honest thoughts about And You see clubs in the MLS spend a lot of money on signing players from abroad, uh, you know, doing trades within the MLS with the allocation money, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel that there's the USL players, you know, the talented, the best USL players can make the transition 
to the MLS. And not just in the situation that you had an expansion team that was a USL team that became an MLS team, for example, like a Forest Lassau. I mean, a player going from a, a Tampa Bay to an MLS team. Do you feel that those players can adjust to the, to the difference between USL and MLS? Because I think from a lot of people on the other side of the business, it seems like MLS teams would rather spend, you know, $8 million on a 28-year-old from Mexico uh, where people wonder, okay, you know, why don't you spend less money, than, uh, less than $8 million and invest? If every MLS team invested, you know, half a million on just the best USL players, could those guys make it in the next level? And why aren't these guys given a lot of opportunities? At least that's my opinion, so I want to hear your opinion. Yeah, I'm going to say something that's very opinionated, so get ready for the backlash. Please do. Uh, um, the top players in USL yeah. are better than the bottom players in MLS. And so why I, don't they get an opportunity? Yeah, well, I, I can categorically say that because I've been at three USO clubs and I've been at two MLS clubs. And, and that's hands down, having worked with them day in and day out. But those top players in USO may be 25, 26, 30, however old they are. But the bottom players on MLS rosters are 17, 18, 19-year-old homegrown players. So those older players who may be American or maybe foreign categorically are better than those young kids. But the young kids that are signed at the bottom of MLS rosters are signed because of potential. It's, it's the hope that they might work their way up the roster. I think the challenge becomes for players from USO to make it and stay in MLS. You have to be better than the players that are probably the second tier players on an MLS roster. And that's where it becomes challenging. It's, it's are you as a 25, 26-year-old player who's having success and you're right at the top of USO and now you go to MLS and now you're the second-tier player who is in the starting 11 or just on the fringes of the starting 11. Are you better than those players? And that's, that's where it becomes very, very challenging. And that's where the subjective part comes into what do different coaches believe in and, and who do they think are better? The top players in USL are definitely not better than the DPs and the top players in MLS. That, that's, that's the echelon where uh, you get what you pay for uh, type of deal. Um, so, yeah, I, I find it fascinating and I have very strong opinions about that because I've lived it. Um, right. And when people say, oh, well, this USL player is better than that players on MLS contract. Yeah, you're probably right. He probably is. But a lot of the players at the bottom of MLS roster are not signed based on where they are today. They're based with the hope of can they become a bigger and better player uh, in the future. The, the challenge is comparing the top USL to that second tier MLS player. And that's, that's where it's very, very difficult for a USL player to break through. Because for whatever reason, maybe they haven't been given up that opportunity or they might have been typecast uh, as a USL player. It's very, very difficult for them to break through. So... It's interesting because what you're saying now, Alan, ties actually back into how we started the show and how you kind of began your career, which is with college. So a lot of USL players played in university. I'm not sure what the percentages are, but a lot of them did. That's, that's true. So that also means that when they get into the professional ranks, they're in their early 20s already, which is very different from the rest of the world. And you're, you, know, you were just saying these, because of that, or at least partially because of that, the USL players, they, they don't, they're not really being compared to the bottom MLS guys because those MLS guys are 17 and that's not really comparing apples to apples. So then 
they need to beat out not only those 17 year olds, but the next, the next level of MLS player. So is, is this something that, is it just going to stay like that? Do you think there needs to be a sort of referendum on the, on that, how, how the United States development system works when it comes to that 17 to 20 year old, when kids make the decision to go to university, because ultimately how, what I'm hearing is if you go to university and you play for three or four years, then when you, when you come out and you want to play professionally, even if let's, let's face it, even if you get drafted, you're going to the USL 90% of the time. If you do that, then it, it kind of sounds like you have a, you're, you're almost killing your, you know, you're, you're stumbling out of the starting block. You don't really have much of a chance before nah, your career yeah. even gets going. Yeah, yes. And no, because if I look at MLS rosters and I, and I, I, I don't know if other people view it this way, but I view it in those three tiers. And if you look at the, the third tier, MLS clubs now are spending so much money on development. So it's only natural that they're going to give these young kids an opportunity to try breaking. So they get signed in that third tier. I think as a college player, your niche is that second tier. And if you go to college and if you develop and if you get to a certain level, you can come in at that second tier and then maybe push on to that first tier. Um, but like many, many percentages in football in the globe, it's a low percentage success rate. Um, and it's kind of a niche market um, because I, I can use examples of players that are coming and being tier two uh, college, college guys and they've pushed on to tier one and I'll use a foreign one, Julian Gressel, uh, and then I'll use an American one, sure. Tim, Tim, Tim Parker. Uh, and Tim is a guy that I worked with in Vancouver, and he's going to slay me for saying this, but when, when Tim came to us and we, we drafted him in Vancouver in the first round as the 13th pick, he came with potential. He was just a supreme athlete. Uh, and he was borderline tier two. Uh, I gave Tim his professional debut with Whitecaps too, and to be brutally honest, Tim Parker was not very good. But you could see you could see the potential that he had, uh, and he grew from that experience in the the USO, and then he's kicked on and being a become a very successful MLS player. Um, so, yeah, I you know what players can come from so many different places and so many different environments, and it's very easy to make uh, I guess categorical statements. Um, but I definitely I said it earlier. I, I view and I appreciate the college game, and it's done good for some players and for some players it's hindered their progress too. Um, but so is the academy model too for, for certain players. Yeah, I think, of course, I don't mean to, maybe I did kind of paint the league in broad strokes or the university system in broad strokes. But of course, there are always good examples like Tim or like Julian Gressel of players who come through the university and end up cracking into the MLS and being not only cracking in, but I mean, Julian Gressel is being paid transfer fee for and they, they become big stars in the league. So do you think maybe it's something that, that just will take some time instead? I think one thing that Rafael and I like to talk a lot about, we've spoken with a few of our guests and um, something that is just a, a hotly debated topic now is the, like the USL is, is an ever-changing entity uh, year to year. I think with the introduction of league one, it's, it's, um, it's still changing in, in where it's placed in, in the American system in terms of, is it going to be a, a professional league where, the guy, a lot of people in, in the USL are going to be later on in their careers and they're playing to, to just enjoy the game. And that's, that's kind of their peak. Um, or will it end up being like a lot of European countries or uh, really countries in pretty much every other part of the world, except the United States, 
will the USL become a, a seller's league to, to the MLS more so than it is right now. But that, that also could be wishful thinking. Do you think that that is the direction that things are heading? I don't know. It's such a tough one. Uh, I think because the game is, yeah, the game has been here for decades, but it's still so new. Uh, and having multiple leagues within a pyramid, um, obviously having no promotion relegation makes it very, very unique. Um, but I think by adding different leagues at different levels, the biggest positive that I see out of it is more opportunities. And I think the more opportunities for players, the more opportunities for coaches is very, very good for the game. Uh, because the more opportunity there is, the more players that have the potential to work their way up through the system, and hopefully that will help the game grow. Um, so, yeah, in terms of what's going to happen, I, I don't really know. Uh, but what I do appreciate, I do think is a big positive, is by having more professional clubs. And you look at the growth with the USL League One, it's fantastic in the US. You look with the, the Canadian Premier League in Canada, that's fantastic because it's just giving more opportunities for players and coaches that maybe wouldn't have gone into the professional game. And, and if we unearth a special player or a special coach from either of those leagues, I think that's a huge positive for the game. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. I think the CPL, the Canada Premier League, has done a good job already of sending some guys over to Europe. And, you know, I look at something Jesse and I have spoken about. I look at there's very, a lot of talented Jamaican strikers in the MLS, uh, sorry, in the USL that score 15, 20 goals in, in the USL, uh, but get waived from the MLS teams for many different reasons. Maybe they're competing against a DP striker. Those guys that are scoring the 15 to 20 goals, could they, could they be successful in other parts of Europe? Could they, you know, some of them have come to Israel, for example, uh, and have been successful. Can they go to smaller European countries and be successful? Is that, do you think, something that could be possible that more uh, players like that who fall through the cracks and maybe can't get into the MLS, but the USL is, is too high, uh, too low of a level for them. Do you think that we can see more of those players make the move to, to Europe or to, to forget Europe, but just other parts of the world? You, you know what? I think a hundred percent because as the USL continues to improve, that means the level of players are improving. And the players that are at the upper echelon of the USL, if they don't get the opportunity uh, for whatever reason to make the jump to MLS, there's other leagues in the world that these players can go and they can be fantastic players. And there's a couple of players that come to mind. I'm not going to say their names, um, <laughs> but there are some players that... Are You're not going to the... say their names because you want to sign them for free. Yeah, 100% because... <laughs> you don't those want them leaving. <laughs> those whiteboards I spoke about, their names are yeah. on the whiteboards. So, exactly. um, no, but there are some players uh, that play in USL that can go be major players in certain leagues. And you mentioned, you mentioned Israel. They're... Maybe, yeah. not at, maybe not at the upper echelon for one of the top two or right. three teams in the league, but in the middle uh, of the first, first tier, yeah, they can, they can go in and, and have success. But not just in Israel, in, in other countries too. Um, right, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I just think it's interesting because there's, there's all this talent and I think the guys are, some, some of them, I, I use Jamaica, for example, just because it's, it's players that we've done some work with and you see that they, they're not even aware that they can go to some of these leagues because they're so used to, you know, their goal is to leave Jamaica, go to America, and hopefully make an MLS. And if not, they can have a very successful career in the USL, be on the higher paid players in the USL. But there's a whole other world where, you know, they could go to an Eastern Europe, make better money. They could go to 
there's lots of markets. And I think that I'd be interesting if, if more scouts and more people started, you know, looking at the USL and realizing that there's a lot of talent. There's also a lot of fantastic, forget Jamaican, but, but players from Africa, players from South America that, you know, aren't as big of profiles, right? They're not the guys that are going to MLS for millions of, of euros, but they're still guys that can, uh, you know, play at a really high level and, and they could be very successful in other parts of the world. So I just was very curious uh, to, to get your thoughts on that. We've been going for a while, so we, we want to end on this and we want to hear more about the project that you're involved with right now. Uh, for those who don't know that much about the switchbacks, what, you know, why you decide to join this, uh, as you said, and as we know, you had a lot of other opportunities in all parts of the world and uh, you decided to take this franchise, which I think if you asked, uh, you know, this podcast is always honest. I think a lot of people raised their eyebrows, to be honest, when, when you were announced, because I think a lot of people wondering why did he do this? Um, you, there were other links in the media. So I'm very curious to hear why you thought this was the right opportunity um, for you and, and kind of, I know it's Corona, so things have happened, but how things have gone since you've uh, been appointed. Yeah, it's really interesting because when I got uh, dismissed by Cincinnati uh, May 7th last year, never forget the date, um, I, I learned a lot and I experienced a lot in those next few months. I was out of the game for five months and it's the first time in my coaching career of 20 years now where I'd ever been sacked. Um, so I learned a lot and I really reflected and our home base is now we have a house in Vancouver, went back to our house and thankfully was able to enjoy the summer with my family um, and really was just open and got presented with some opportunities in various places uh, back in South Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, and none of them were the right fit at this particular time. Uh, and then the switchbacks came along and you could see that it was a project. The team finished last in the league last year. So right. you, can t you can tell there's a lot of changes that need to be made, and we've made some of those changes already. Uh, they're building the stadium, which will be ready next March. So you can see there's a positive direction, the club, the ownership, the president, everybody wants to go in. Uh, and that excites me. Those types of things where I, I feed off other people's passions and their enthusiasms uh, for their investment, first off, but also where they would like to take their club. Uh, and when I came out, I interviewed, I saw a club that they knew and they know they had to make changes. Uh, and we've made some of those changes already, uh, but also are showing a willingness to invest as we move forward. And that's not in a budget. We're, we're still one of the lower budgets in the league, and that's fine. Uh, but showing that they want to invest in putting the stadium in place, the fan experience, and helping to grow something. Uh, and that's something that I felt I could come here and make a big, big positive impact on what we're trying to do so that's why i chose this uh it's something yeah. that we're, we've had fun so far corona has derailed things a little bit yeah. um we did a major assessment of where we were at uh, with the team at the end of last year uh, i felt like within the budget that we're given we did a very good job of recruitment we brought players in that i can personally say i'm very excited to work with um we had a very good developmental preseason. we played the first game of uh the season on the road, uh, we won. So we tied the number of games the club won on the road last year. So that's a big right. positive. Uh, and then we had momentum taken away from us. But we're, we're living, we're learning. 
from this process. We're living and learning through this pandemic, which I think the best clubs, coaches, and players will do. Uh, and whenever we start again, we're going to come out of this in a positive mindset and hopefully continue to do positive things. Absolutely. And, and something that I found very interesting about uh, Colorado was that the attendance continued to rise every year. And even though last year wasn't such a great uh, successful season, the attendance was really good. So you can see it's something Jesse and I have spoken about. There's a passion in the community. And if you combine good football, new stadium, new exciting project, I think it made a lot of sense to me when, uh, when you were announced. But I also understood why a lot of people – I also was trying to – get on the other side of the, the spectrum and understand. But I, I think that there's definitely a lot of uh, excitement in that community. And it seems like, like you said, when, when there's that, when, when there's that idea that there will, you want a new stadium and the stadium is going to be much bigger, there's a lot to build up to it. And it seems like that's something that you, I think if people listen to this, it seems that's something that really motivates you and that you really love. And that's, I think something that makes uh, you a very unique coach and, and a great coach. So the stadium does look uh, beautiful, by the way. Yeah, the stadium looks beautiful. Uh, it's, it's been cool to see some pictures. Uh, we could go on for a long time, but I think that's all we have uh, for today. So thank you so much. I think everyone who listened really learned a lot about what it's like to make multiple transitions in coaching and your philosophies. And I'm sure other coaches will um, go with your philosophy. Some others won't, but I'm sure everyone will appreciate all the things that you had uh, to say to us. So, yeah, thank you very much for your time. I hope that uh, things get better in your part of the world. It seems like they are. Uh, and, that, and that you'll be back out uh, on the pitch playing football very soon. No, I appreciate it, guys. It was a privilege. And uh, be safe and you know, wishing everybody the best as we move forward. Yeah.